When we launched Generations Community Church in 2004, when we launched Generations Community Church in 2004, my parents were part of it, from, and they were in Generations from day one. And my dad was a host and a greeter. We didn't have uh, lobby space at the country club, but we had it at the elementary school. And I can't tell you how many different people that I encountered that would say to me, I just love your dad, Mike. Mike, is, was, Mike made me feel so welcome. In fact, the reason I came back was your dad. No one ever said, you're preaching, like, right? <laughs> right? The, your dad is, Mike was just made me. And so my dad ran FPU classes, and my dad was our face in the community. So before I kind of stepped into the Chamber of Commerce, he was kind of Mr. Chamber of Commerce on our behalf, on behalf of Generations Community Church. And as I shared last week in 2010, he, he contracted pancreatic cancer and he died. And I was unprepared for what happened next. What happened next is that family by family uh, started leaving in about the 20 months after my dad's funeral. Uh, in all, about 20 households kind of trickled away from Generations Community Church for one, one reason or another. And at the time, I minimized that. Uh, I said things like, uh, well, people come and people go. The church will be okay. I'm okay, you know. That was not true, by the way, right? I was minimizing what was going on on the inside. So on the inside, it felt kind of personal, even though it wasn't. And it, it, it just, it hurt, right? But I didn't allow myself to hurt in those ways. If you go back 10 years earlier than that, in the year 2000, Jenny and I were expecting our second child. John Mark was a very active three-year-old boy that we were trying to potty train so bad. And we had put this giant fire truck on top of the refrigerator. And if he would just go consistently for a week, he could get that fire truck. And it was so hard. So if some of you are there right now, I just want you to know, I understand, okay? But, but we were expecting and... I had a grandmother that was kind of like a second mom to me, Grandma Vi, and Jenny and I were also trying to figure out, is there a way that we could bring Grandma Vi down to Kentucky so that she could be here? Because we weren't close to her, nobody was really close to her anymore, and we kept talking about this. And uh, it was Thanksgiving that year, and my grandmother had been kind of in and out of the hospital, um, and it was little small things that, you know, would, would not kill anybody, and she would spend a day or two in the hospital and then go back. And on Thanksgiving, we got a call that Grandma Vi was in the hospital again, and, and she'd probably be home in a couple of days. And, and I remember I just had a sense, no, that's not it. And I made my dad drive us all the way to all the way to Indiana to see her, and, and sure enough, she died the next day. And, uh, and the thing about Grandma Vanderpool is that she was the person that would do things like, Mark, I believe God's got something special for you. God's gonna use you, Mark, I believe in you. That's my real name, by the way. And so um, she would say those things, and, and I actually drunk the Kool-Aid, like I believed her. I don't know if you've had people in your life who say things like that to you, but you have a tendency to believe them and you're like, tell me more, and, okay? And so that was the dynamic of that relationship and I didn't allow myself to cry, right? Because she had had rheumatoid arthritis and she was in heaven now, right? So everything's better, this is better. This is a better way for it to go. Jillian, by the way, our, our second child was born a few days later after the funeral. 
And that's why her middle name is Hope, that we were hoping something good would come out of something bad. I've noticed in Christian settings that people tend to minimize loss and disappointment. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I've noticed that in Christian settings, we tend to minimize loss and disappointments. It's no big deal. I'll be okay. You know, God's got something better for me, right? And people will say these things. And um, I'm not so sure it's the best practice, right? It, the, if you've been looking for a job for 26 months, if you're the couple that can't get pregnant, if you had thought that this particular school or internship job was God's provision and the door gets slammed closed, like, I understand the power of God's got something better for me, but I think we have a tendency to minimize loss. And so what I want to say to you today is embrace the losses and disappointments of life. In, like, I know, you're, uh, I don't know if I buy into this, Max. Well, let me make a case for it today, okay? But embrace the losses and disappointments of life. Do not minimize them. Many of us will carry defense mechanisms from our childhood into adulthood to protect us from pain and loss so that it, we don't really feel the weight of what it is that we lost and, and we don't feel the weight of losing what we had hoped for. And so I want to list a few of them that I've done and that I've witnessed in other people. One is outright denial. We refuse to acknowledge the loss or the pain accurately. Someone might say, my boss betrayed me and I got fired, but you know what? It's okay. I'll find another job. Really? Uh, another way that we do this is minimizing. We admit that something's wrong, but uh, we make it out to be less than what it actually is. The couple who's struggling with an adult child who is in the throes of alcoholism and you ask them, well, how's your son? And they say, oh, he's okay. He just, he drinks every now and then, right? They're minimizing what's going on. Uh, another way we do that is we blame. We blame others uh, for things that we're responsible for. Well, the reason my sister's in the hospital is the doctors messed up her meds. No, that was you that did that, but you know, they're saying they're putting blame on someone else. Or then we'll take blame that's not ours. We'll blame ourselves. Uh, we inwardly take faults for things that don't belong to us. For example, someone might say, well, my, my mom doesn't take care of me and she drinks because I'm just not a good daughter. If I were a better daughter, you know, she would, she would up her game as a mom. Another way we do this is rationalizing. I realize the words are getting bigger. It's okay. Rationalizing. We offer excuses and justifications and alibis to provide an inaccurate explanation of what's going on. Um, we might say something like, well, Dennis is angry a lot. It's, it's a family thing. All of the men in that family are angry. I, it's probably genetic. We rationalize it. Um, we intellectualize, another big word. We give analysis, theories, and generalities to avoid the personal awareness and difficult feelings that we might be having. Um, intellectualizing is a favorite one of mine. Uh, how do I intellectualize? Well, this is really bad, but you know, if I lived in Haiti, it would be worse because I wouldn't have access to clean drinking water and I wouldn't have a roof over my head. Could be worse. I could be living in Siberia, you know, <laughs> right? And so we kind of intellectualize away our problem. Another way is distracting. I've used this. Um, uh, we change the subject or engage in humor 
to avoid certain topics. I was very good at a long time of using humor to avoid certain topics that I didn't want to discuss. Um, our favorite way to do that in is uh, here in this state. Man, have you seen how the cats are smoking this season? Woo, go Wildcats. Where, where did that come from? We were talking about your parents. No, 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 <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, okay, so another way is we just become hostile, right? We get mad or irritable when a particular subject is brought up. Don't talk about mom. She's gone. Talking about her is not going to bring her back. You seem angry. I'm not, you know, and that kind of thing plays out, right? Can we acknowledge that none of this is healthy. None of this is good. None of this helps us to live life well. As if the Psalms weren't enough uh, to show us that we should be brutally honest about what's in us, we have the book of Job. And that's, that's where I want to be today. Is I want to give you an overview and, and zoom in on some things from the book of Job. Job is part of what's called wisdom literature in the Bible. And there are three books that are part of wisdom literature. The first is the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is all about you reap what you sow. In life, you get what you deserve. So if you study hard, you work hard, you save, life works out well for you. If you're lazy and you spend everything you, don't, you have and then some, or you don't study, oh, things are going to be bad for you. So Proverbs is all about you reap what you sow. And then Ecclesiastes is kind of the footnote to that because Solomon is saying, you know, I've lived long enough that I've seen some lazy people die rich, fat, and happy. And I've seen some people that worked their tails off and died hungry and without anything. Like, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, life is not fair, to which everyone should say, amen. Let me say that again. Life is not fair. Amen. <laughs> right? And then there's yet another footnote, which is the book of Job. Is God just? Is the universe just? And so Job starts off with this scene in heaven in chapter 1 with God and some heavenly beings, and they're having a conversation and they're talking about a man named Job. And God basically says to these heavenly beings, hey, look down there. You seen my guy Job? Awesome. I mean, isn't he? Come on, come on. Job is awesome. Well, one of the heavenly beings called the Satan, um, Satan, Satan, come on, you've heard of him, right? Uh, the Satan challenges God and basically says, hey, boss, I don't mean to burst your bubble. Job, he's just working the system, man. You've blessed his socks off. Who wouldn't be like, God is awesome when they've got a wife and kids and they're the richest person in the world? Like, who wouldn't be like saying God's awesome? Tell you what, you take away all his stuff, that man Job down there, he's going to curse you with his very next breath. And then something amazing happens. God says, okay, test him. And that's what happens next. In one day, Job loses everything. In one day. Crops, animals, uh, farmhands, buildings, all seven sons, all three daughters, everyone and everything except his wife who gives him this sage advice. Hey, honey, 
curse God and die, please. <laughs> right? Job, who was the Jeff Bezos of his day, was blameless, righteous, and a man who honored God. That's what the Bible tells us. And yet, he loses everything. In the first couple of chapters, Job is still praising God. Notice this. He shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. But in chapter 3, Job's health goes away. And now he's covered with boils all over his body to the point where he's almost unrecognizable. And for the next 30-some chapters, Job and a set of friends of his have a series of speeches back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And Job's friends are wanting to insist, Job, the universe is in fact just. God is just. And the fact that you have all these bad things that have happened to you means you're a sinner. Come on, fess up, tell us. Tell us what you've done to offend the Almighty. We know you've brought this on yourself because that's how life works. And Job has a series of speeches where he keeps saying, I am innocent. I've not done anything to bring this on my head. You guys are out to lunch. And in over 30-some chapters, we get an emotional roller coaster. Sometimes Job is saying things like, God is wise and just and good. And then sometimes Job is saying things that make it sound like Job believes God is cruel or unjust. And I want to I cue you in on some of those things. In all of what Job says, he's honest about what's in his heart, about what he's lost and how he's grieving and how he's suffering. And if any of you have ever faced hard things, or a loss, or a huge disappointment in life, you know the emotional roller coaster that it is with your relationship with God and everyone else. Job says this in, in chapter 3, let the day of my birth be erased. In other words, I wish I had never even been born. In the night I was conceived, let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high, and let no light shine on it. In chapter 6, he says this, If my misery could be weighed and my troubles could be put on the scales, they would outweigh all the sands of the sea. That's why I spoke impulsively. The Almighty has struck me down with his arrows. Their poison infects my spirit. God's terrors are lined up against me. This is the kind of stuff we teach in church all the time, right? <laughs> right? Chapter 9, innocent or wicked, it's all the same to God. That's why I said he destroys the blameless and the wicked. And then in chapter 16, God hates me and angrily tears me apart. He snaps his teeth at me and pierces me with his eyes. Some of you might be shocked today because you're like, that's in the Bible? Somebody is talking about God that way in the Bible? Yes, yes it is. Inspired word of God. Okay, so I, I want to unpack some of this. In all of these things, Job is honest. And if I'm honest with you today, there have been so many times in my life where I've hit a loss or a disappointment where I haven't been honest. If you grow up in the church, you might have been 
taught or you might have come to believe that some emotions are good and some emotions are bad. And that if you have bad feelings and bad emotions, it means somehow you're sinning. And you might also believe that you can't tell God or other people in the church if you feel bad or if you feel that God has abandoned you because God hasn't abandoned you. The Bible tells you so. You're sinning, right? And so there's this disconnect that we do between how we feel and our faith, and it it turns us out to be kind of hypocrites in some ways, right? Because we're not being honest. We're not being honest. In chapter 38, uh, God actually appears to Job in this whirlwind and takes Job on a tour of the universe. Um, If we were writing the book of Job today, we would say that God took Job to the microscopic level and, and God showed Job Bozen Higgs particles and then, and then God took Job out into the cosmos and showed Job dark matter and, and black holes. And then God does two things. God asks Job two questions. God asks Job, hey, now that you've seen everything, can you run it? Can you run it? And then God asks the second question. Do you even understand it? Do you? Mic drop. And off God goes. God never answers why, never answers why Job suffered. Never. If you've hit hard things in life and you've asked that question, you're not going to find it in the book of Job. But God says this. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you. Remember all the people that were like Job's friends who were saying, you're a thinner, Job. That's why all this stuff is falling on you. Come on, fess it up. You're a thinner. And so God's angry with him and his friends. I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. Wait a minute. Were y'all paying attention to what Job just said about God? (laughs) And God says, You've spoken accurately about me, huh? What? Yeah, God says that about Job. Embrace the losses and disappointments of life, okay? So in our culture, the way that we tend to do this is we tend to do this through addiction. When something really hard, when something really challenging happens to us, we watch TV incessantly. We become workaholics at our job. We keep ourselves busy so we don't let our mind and our heart wander to the thing that's, that's the hole there. And the other way we do it is through the standard addictions that you're aware of. We become addicted to porn and self-pleasure or eating uh, or pills or alcohol. This city's full of people who are drinking themselves silly because they're hurt, right? And at the end of the day, the alcohol doesn't provide the relief that they're hoping for. So... Let me ask a question in light of what we see in the book of Job. And that question is this. As you were growing up, how did you process life's disappointments and loss? How did you do that? How did your family train you to do that? My family, uh, we, uh, you know, shove it, don't feel it, (laughs) and minimize it, right? Um, As you were growing up, how did you deal with disappointments? And for those of you that are younger, let's say you're here and you're 15, 
how, are, how do your parents process disappointments, right? How, are, how do they process loss and disappointments? What does that look like for you? So how can we take this home? Well, first, uh, and I've got paper versions of this on the poll on your way out. You could take time this week and complete a grief chart. This is right out of, out of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, from these ages of your life, what's a loss or a disappointment that you experienced and how did you respond at the time? You may find that as you complete that, that you see a pattern or that you see something. It might help you to see something about yourself that's a little bit beneath the surface. Um, but take the time to assess how you've handled loss, how you've handled grief. The second thing is, Name a loss of the past year and how has it impacted you? Just articulate that. What is that? But most importantly, bring to God what's actually in you, not what ought to be in you. See, for those of us that are part of Team Jesus, we have the sense that we ought to feel grateful. We ought to know that God is with us every moment of the day. We ought to be able to trust God no matter what. And those are all true. We ought to do those things, but there are days where we just don't and we don't feel it. If you're not familiar with the book of Psalms, there's a reason that both Jews and Christians consider the book of Psalms to be the learning manual for how to pray. If you've ever gone through the Psalms, I'm doing a Psalm a day, uh, it's raw, unfiltered emotion on the one hand, right? So it's, God, you're amazing. Creation is beautiful. You're my rock and my redeemer. The next psalm, God, why have you forsaken me? You are oppressing me. My enemies are about to snuff my light out, life out. You stink. Where are you, God? Right next to each other. And, and so as you're going through the Psalms, it gives you a language. It helps you to articulate what's on the inside, right? So bring to God what's actually in you, not what ought to be in you. And then one thing I do from time to time is, what are some limits in my life? I don't know about you, but I'm human, and that means I've got limits. <laughs> and part of being human is embracing my limits. Thank God for some of the limits that he's put in your life. I want to close with a look at this man here. I've, I, he's Horatio Spafford, dashing fellow from the 19th century. He lived in Chicago. He was a wealthy businessman. And in the uh, 1871, 1871 Chicago fire, he lost everything, like everything. And he was devastated and his family was devastated. And so in order to regroup and kind of figure out how he was going to kind of re-go at life, he sent his wife Anna and his four da daughters on ahead to Europe. So back then, there were no, you know, 747, Airbus, A320s. You got on an ocean liner and you crossed the Atlantic Ocean. That's how you did it. So they got on this ocean liner, Anna, his wife, and his four daughters. And however long into the voyage, the ship sank. It happened back then. But this ship sank in 12 minutes. And Anna was trying so hard to hold on to her four daughters, and she couldn't. The waves were too strong, and one by one, they got pulled right out of her arms. So she telegraphs her husband two words, 
saved alone. So now he's got to go meet up with his wife in Europe, and he's lost all four of his daughters on the heels of losing everything he had. Sound like Job? It floors me, but while he was on that ocean liner on the way to Europe, around the area where the other ship sank, he wrote a song. We sing it regularly in church. Do you know what the song is? It is well with my soul. He wrote that song (laughs) in the wake of all of that. Is God good? Yes, he is. Do I always feel that God is good? Eh, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But you're smart enough to know that feelings, you feel what you feel. Sometimes they line up with reality and sometimes they don't. But it's not good for you to go through life denying what you feel on the inside. That God's a big God and he can take that kind of honesty. If he can take it from Job, he can take it from you and me. And so I would beg you to embrace loss and disappointment. Here's here's one of the things that drives me nuts about God. God cares far more about my character development than he does about my happiness. Mm, Love you for it, God. I mean, he, he just does. He cares far more about my character development than my happiness, like a good father does. And, and so uh, I have found that it's the hard things in life that cause me to grow. It's the hard things and losses and disappointments in life that allow me to become, in a sense, a bigger person than I am. No one ever becomes a great man or a great woman that, that, follow, that has a heart after God because they got everything they wanted in life and it was easy, right? So I just wanted to remind us of this in the middle of this series. Um, we're actually gonna sing this song together, right? Now that you know the story behind it and that's how we're gonna close out our time together. I'm gonna ask Matt and the musicians up and I wanna pray for us uh, and pray for me. Father, hmm. There are moments in our lives and we don't even have words, right? All the stuff that's going on in the inside, the struggle bus and the, you know, we can't even articulate. Um, So I ask that that, uh, what we read in scripture is in fact true, that the Holy Spirit is able to translate all that is within us for you before your throne. We thank you that Jesus learned from what he suffered. We thank you for Jesus who makes a way for us to be right with you, not based on our performance, not based on having our act together, but based on his life, his death, his resurrection. That's truly good news. It means death doesn't have to have the final say. So Father, in this life, we groan and we ache sometimes and we await the day when things will be made new, when things will be made right finally so and in the meantime we ask that you would continue to work in us through your spirit that somehow some way the fruit of the spirit that Paul talks about in his letters would be true of us we pray these things in Jesus name amen